Entrepreneurs often have similar characteristics. Energy, passion, vision. But why do some soar to success while others struggle to climb? Less than 2% of women-owned businesses in North America ever achieve a million dollars a year in annual revenue. Why is that? And how do we dramatically increase that number? Welcome to Breakthrough with your host, Sarah Roach-Lewis. Sarah offers conversations with the ambitious women entrepreneurs in that 2% to help you break through. Now, here is Sarah Roach-Lewis. Well, hello, ambitious one. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Breakthrough. Perhaps you have a bold ambition or an emerging desire to hit the million-dollar mark and beyond in your business. You may be well on your way or just starting out. Regardless, this show is for you. Today, I am really excited to welcome Erin Kelly to the show. Erin is the co-founder and CEO of Advanced Symbolics in Ottawa, Canada. Advanced Symbolics is where artificial intelligence meets market research. They use publicly available online information to create representative samples of any population to accurately predict human behavior. Erin, welcome to the show, and what the heck does that mean? <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Um, so it means, so anytime you want to do scientific research, you have to start with a representative sample of the population you want to measure. So that's true whether you're doing a drug trial um, or market research in this case. So anybody who's doing scientific-based market research, um, they want to be careful to make sure that the people they're asking their questions to come from um, slices of the population that represent the whole. So they don't want to talk to everybody who makes two hundred thousand dollars a year they want to make sure they have well-to-do if they're looking at general population for example people who are well-to-do people who are not well-to-do people who are educated people who are less educated so that they have a good representation uh, sometimes if we're looking at for example the LGBTQ community we have information from from Statistics Canada or other statistical bodies that tell us uh, what this population looks like from an income and education perspective. So we have a way to test to make sure that that sample that we have represents the whole. So that's, that's what it means in a nutshell. This is very challenging to do on social media. As you can imagine, in the quote-unquote real world, we have postal code data, we have neighborhoods. So we know, for example, if we're calling into certain neighborhoods or s surveying in certain neighborhoods, we know the demographics of those neighborhoods. In social media, your ID is just randomly generated. It's not tagged, you know, you're not tagged to a certain city or population. It doesn't tell us anything about you. We don't have that postal code data. So it took us five years to develop a methodology, of course, completely protecting people's personal privacy. We don't collect names or anything like that. This is all for population level research. But to be able to bring the demographics that we have in the real world to social media. So in, a sense, in essence, that's what we're doing here. Amazing. So let me make sure I have this straight. So you take information that that is publicly available on social media. And from there, you run this through your um, AI, whose name is Polly, which I think is hilarious. Um, and then Polly, your AI is able to um, you know, sort of spit out information about whatever the topic is that you're researching. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, yeah, she's able to tell us, uh, based on the topic that we're researching, how many women feel this way, how many women age 18 to 32. We can say we only want a sample of women with young children, and, you know, what do they, what are their concerns about nutrition and exercise and safety and things like that. So um, 
so that's exactly right. We're able to hone in on a population for the purposes of doing research. Just like so, we do in the, in the real world when we're researching populations. Yeah. And really, AI, being able, this, this whole idea about big data, and I love to talk, you know, sort of dig into that idea around big data and what that is, because um, it, you know, it certainly doesn't always have a great reputation. However, I think what's interesting is this big data or the, the way that we collect data now is providing opportunities that weren't ever there before about getting information about people. Yeah, so in historically, so our when we first started, actually the biggest demand for our services came from healthcare providers. And for example, Health Canada was a big, big customer of ours. Uh, because Health Canada, for example, would put out notices to say this drug or this ingredient in a drug is being re called, but they had no way of knowing if people had got the recall notice and stopped taking those medicines or changed their habits. Because you can imagine it's very difficult and invasive. First of all, if you're talking about fluoroquinolones, which is you know an ingredient in a drug, you'd have to call a lot of people, like 100,000 people say, are you on fluoroquinolones? And a lot of people wouldn't know if they are or not, because sure. so then you have to list out all the drugs. And then it gets very you know, it's people just don't want to, and only 7% of people will actually take a survey or answer it. We don't ask any questions. We just go online and get these representative samples and we see our people talking about changing these behaviors. So when we were contracted by Health Canada, we were able to tell them confidently now, yes, people did get your, did get the recall notice. They didn't necessarily get it from Health Canada. They might've had other sources, but they got the notice and they did change. So, um, so that was extremely valuable. And, um, those hard to reach populations sometimes that you're, whether it's transgender communities, et cetera, to see how people are feeling. We've done a lot of work on suicide reduction, suicide research. Um, and these were things that were difficult to do in the past. Um, but now with uh, the ability to study people in their natural environment, what they're naturally saying, we are able to get at those um, populations and we're we'll able to, we're able to do that research in a very cost-effective way mm. uh, for these organizations. So it's it's really um, it's it's revolutionary in that way. And just like Statistics Canada, um, you want to be able to uh, you don't want to throw the baby out the bathwater. We need this research, right? There's a reason why we have Statistics Canada because they provide the data that allows us to provide services to the population. So we work with the same kind of policy bodies in and out of government to provide this research that is very accurate and cost-effective. So interesting. Okay, I, I want to dig into that more a little bit. Um, but before I do that, the other thing that um, you're certainly well known for is um, predicting elections. So your AI predicted the 2016 presidential Trump win, um, the last two Canadian federal elections. Right. And and I think, you know, even, so it's fascinating. So how does, um, <clears throat> how does your AI figure this stuff out so that they're able to predict these, I mean, particularly the last Canadian election, it was a minority government. That wouldn't have been an easy one for anyone to predict. Yeah, the, the last one was amazing for us because, of course, so we did each individual riding across Canada. Not only were we able to, predict the writings with laser sharpness. Like if you saw our results, we were off by two seats uh, with the liberals, three seats by the conservatives. So she's incredibly accurate. And yes, 
we were, if you look at the other pollsters, most of them weren't even calling the election. They were saying it was too close to call, but Polly got it um, exactly bang on. Um, and the reason she's able to do it is because we learned from the American election because the, the Trump election 2016 was one of the few times in American history where the president did not get the popular vote, but won the election. Hillary Clinton actually got more of the popular vote. Um, so it was very important to be able to do each electoral district. Now that's very expensive if you're doing phone surveys or any other kind of survey because you've got to get a representative sample in 300 ridings in this case, or you know, many, many districts. Uh, but we were able to do all, I forget how many ridings were, 370 something ridings. Uh, we were able to do each individual one. We were able to nail down what were the issues in each of these ridings. Um, we were predicting a liberal minority government a month out from election day and understanding the rise. I think we were the first ones to talk about the rise of the Bloc Québécois this time around. And it wasn't because of separatism, it was because of the pipeline. So we were able to get at all of those issues and reasons. And um, so, yeah, we were just so thrilled with how well she did in the uh, Canadian federal election. In fact, she's never been wrong um, since 2016 on these big federal elections and referendums. We also did Brexit. She got that one right too, 52%. So she's incredible. Amazing. So let's back up a little bit. So um, I find it fascinating that, that um, your AI, you know, has a gender and, and you, you kind of refer to her sort of as a person with some of those personal characteristics. But let's just pull back a little bit. Where, how did you um, get into this space? How did you, uh, you, you, you said that it took five years um, to create this technology. So, so take me back there. What did this look like at the beginning and how did you decide that you wanted to predict the future? <laughs> um, well, I was working in an advertising agency at the time in market research and um, it was getting more and more difficult. I mean, the way we used to do what we call attribution. So uh, we would say to, to customers or clients, um, you know, we, we did recall rates on the messaging and people recall seeing the ad. So therefore the ad was effective, but more and more I was uncomfortable with saying that I was uncomfortable. It really wasn't a good science to it. And so I wanted to bring more analytics into the field and so I started doing it at the agency, but really this was a creative agency and they weren't into analytics. We would have had to have had a wholesale change of the staff, if you know what I mean. So, um, so I decided was, I was better off to go off on my own and start a new company that did analytics. So I did that. Uh, that company uh, was called Zero Pi at the time. And uh, we had quite a bit of success. Uh, my business partner had a different company called uh, Geary. And we were, it just happened to both be in the same city. And I was, you know, I was getting a lot of publicity and he saw the stuff that I was doing. He called me up and said, I've just got this other amazing technology. We should join forces and have one company. So we did that. We joined our companies and we created advanced symbolics. Uh, the other two companies went away. And, um, and we, we, and both of us independently had this fascination with, well, he had much more of a fascination with, human behavior and how do we analyze it? He's a, he's a physicist. So how do I, can I predict human behavior the way we can predict physics? Mine was more on the interest in measurement and media and message testing. And we do both of those things now. So we do a lot of the work in the healthcare and science and measurement. And we do a lot 
of work in advertising and market research, and so we've got the whole swath of it. Um, uh, so it was really in, in uh, wanting to be able to say to our customers, we can prove that this worked or didn't work. We can tell you which of your messages are resonating with people and which ones aren't and help you streamline where you want to put your messages. Like we can tell you, for example, we did some fascinating work for an environmental organization. Uh, they wanted to raise awareness about climate change. Uh, we, we told them exactly like if you're in the New York Times, you can, I forget, I forget I'm going off the top of my head, but if you're in this publication, talk about carbon capture and those technologies. If you're in a different publication, you can criticize President Trump and his policies because those readers are into that. Uh, but if you're in this publication, you don't want to be uh, criticizing the president. You want to be talking more about these issues. So we, we managed to, and that's called attribution, where you figure out what, what message is going to resonate best in which medium and in which channel. And, uh, and we've had tremendous success with that as well. Really seeing, you know, it's really gratifying for me when we see the, the messages going out there. Like we just had a fascinating conversation with a customer yesterday who said, we want people to buy compostable packaging and not biodegradable because a lot of people don't understand. I didn't know this until yesterday that most municipal facilities can't process biodegradable packaging. So it actually just goes into the landfill. Uh, whereas compostable, it can be processed and often in your own backyard. And so it's much more environmentally friendly. So how do we explain that to people? And that's true across North America, by the way, even in the United States, that biodegradable packaging is not being properly processed. So, um, so it's, it's really gratifying for me when we see that success, that we, we start to see the, the tide turning, people understanding, because you, you realize that in the past, it used to take us a whole generation to change behavior, right? Like, look at how long it took us to get people to stop drinking and driving. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took 25 years to say, don't drink and drive, um, even though that's common sense. We are, at least we see it that way now, right? Or even don't smoke. It was a whole generation. I mean, if, you know, before we could get kids not to think that that was cool. So now we're seeing much quicker turnarounds um, for issues because we're better able to understand how to communicate with people in ways that they will get it because it's a busy, busy society. There's lots of messages out there. So how do we get messages to people quickly so that we can start doing things we need to do, right? Wow. How do you decide who you're going to work with? Because I think while we've had this information, while we've, well, marketers have been doing this for generations. As you say, you know, Stats Canada has been collecting information for a really long time. What you're in a place right now is being able to do that in a stunningly accurate kind of way. So do you, as a company, how do you make decisions about who you engage with um, to sell these products, to sell your services? <laughs> That's an excellent question and one that we talk about a lot because um, obviously, especially with the new generation, uh, young people, they like to work on causes and issues and things that are important. And it's actually a good recruiting tool for us because we can say, look, you can go work for this company where you're essentially selling ads and getting people to, people to click on clickbait, or you can come work for advanced symbolics and reduce suicide rates rates and save lives so it's a it's very compelling and and we get really great staff because of that so we we want to keep doing that uh, we're doing some really really great work and I can we can go into that a little bit more even with immigrants uh, to new to Canada and women in the workforce and how engaged they feel how appreciated they feel so all that kind of stuff um, so we but at the same 
same time, we don't want to be judging uh, who we work with and who we don't work with. Um, so I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, there was um, kind of like a group of farmers that were concerned, this was in the United States, that uh, a chemical they, they use for pesticide uh, work would be banned because of environmental groups. And they said, you know, when you look at um, the environmental agency and the health agency, they both concluded that in the manner that it was being used, it's not causing harm to human health. Um, and if we got rid of it, so on the one hand, you've got the environmental groups that say we want to ban this, but if you did, um, there would be massive increases in food prices and shortages of food. And, and so how do you make a decision there, right? Yeah. I mean, low-income people are very affected by suddenly, you know, nutritious food, fresh food prices are going to skyrocket because we don't have these pesticides. On the other hand, we don't want these pesticides in the environment. So it's not for us. We don't make those decisions. We see ourselves as information peacekeepers. Um, we want to get the information out there and we really do think that for the most part when people have the information they need um, and the right information they will make good decisions um, because most things are complicated like that's what you learn when you go through this right it most things are complicated now we have made a very strict decision that we do not work for political parties we will never work for political parties um, because we do a lot of work with with uh, you know with federal public servants. So we do a lot of work safe with the with health agencies and things like that. And we don't want to be seen as we're affiliated with a particular government, a political party, because that's because we're not, we really are agnostic politically. Um, but aside from that, we think every, it's kind of like being a lawyer, everybody deserves representation when it comes to data and things like that. So we don't say, even if we think somebody's guilty, we don't say, well, we're not going to give you a lawyer, we're just going to throw you in jail because we've made our minds up. Um, it's, it's, um, we've not had a situation, I don't think, where we felt that we were on the wrong side of something. It's really about you have something to say, you want to communicate it, we will help you communicate it, and then people can make their own decisions uh, based on that. Amazing. I'm going to stop us right here and uh, take us off to break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this really fascinating conversation with Erin Kelly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready to grow your business to the next level? Check out SRL Solutions for more information on training, coaching, and lots of resources for building your business sustainably and profitably. As a partner who helps you strategize and plan, Sarah Roach-Lewis helps you turn your vision into reality. She helps you identify the right area of focus at the right time. Visit srl.solutions to find out more and for a free consultation. That's srl.solutions. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Breakthrough with Sarah Roach-Lewis. 
To reach Sarah or her guest on today's program, please send an email to Sarah at srl.solutions. Again, that's Sarah at srl.solutions. Now, back to this week's episode of Breakthrough. Welcome back to Breakthrough. I'm here today talking with Erin Kelly of Advanced Symbolics. And we just are having this such an interesting conversation about um, AI and, and some of the impacts that it has. So, Erin, I can only imagine with the fact that you have accurately predicted all of these elections in the last, um, you know, since 2015, um, <clears throat> And knowing that we're moving into a federal election, uh, an election in the U.S. Um, this year, I can only imagine how busy you are. Um, how are you able to manage the growth because you're working in all of these different areas as well? That's, that's an ongoing, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry, that's an ongoing challenge, uh, how to, because right now, so we have customers in 15 different countries. And, uh, and we have, you know, full-time offices in Canada only. So we're in uh, at Toronto, uh, Ottawa, Vancouver, but we're now looking to move into the United States because we have a lot of customers in the United States and a lot of customers in Western Europe. And uh, so I'm traveling to Western Europe every month. My business partner is in the U.S. every month. He's there right now, in fact. <laughs> um, and for both of us, it's, you know, it's very, very challenging. And it's also the climate in the U.S. right now, it's challenging to uh, open up an office there. So what we, so anyway, we've got a big strategy there, which I won't get into, but we are looking, we'll probably have a full-time office with a good size staff, at least the same size, number of staff that we have in Canada by early 2021 next year, maybe even the end of this year. Um, and then, and then, so we want to get that established and then do Europe, but it is definitely a big challenge. It's a big challenge. It's, um, you know, it, it, and it, uh, and I think it'll continue to be a big challenge for many years to come managing that growth. And, uh, luckily for me, I'm a European citizen and my business partner has, we're both dual citizens, we're both Canadian, but he also has American citizenship. So that makes it easy for us to go back and forth around the globe. So I, I would say to your listeners, if anybody has eligibility for dual citizenship and you want to build a global company, take advantage of that second passport. <laughs> right? Well, and, and something I wouldn't have thought about. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at doubling your staff in the next year. How does one plan for that? Ah. <sighs> Well, so one of, have, <laughs> one of the things you have to decide is, are you going to grow organically or by acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the key decisions that you have to make. And, um, and there are pluses and minuses to both. Um, I would say right now in the United States, it's probably easier to, to grow by acquisition. Um, because what we found when we were expanding just to go from Ottawa to Toronto, for example, it's very challenging because our, what we did originally was we said, okay, here's the office in Toronto. Now we're going to go hire some people from Toronto and put them in the office. <laughs> that wasn't so successful because they had no ties to headquarters, right? Which is in Ottawa. And even though we, okay, come down to Ottawa and we keep a condo here for our staff. When they come to Ottawa, they have a place to stay and they, uh, they interact with the team it wasn't the same as having been immersed in the culture, et cetera. So we ended up with very different 
uh, sort of culture in Toronto than here, which, so what we decided to do uh, was take some of our staff from Ottawa and actually move them to Toronto. And that worked way, way better. I mean, it was leagues better. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so then we decided we were going to do the United States. Well, what we want to do is we want to take people from our Canadian office who've been with us for two, three years and move them to the United States. Also hire Americans, of course. I mean, we want to hire Americans. Uh, but it was, we felt necessary to have at least one or like two people, on, one on the tech side and one on the business side, who were from Canada, or at least had been with us for a while and could convey that culture and have the history of the company. It's very challenging to do that in the United States, though, because they don't want to, they don't want to take uh, immigrants in the United States, they, and Canadians are immigrants. So, um, so we're still working through that challenge. That's why my business partner, who's a dual citizen, is going back and forth. So what we'll probably do is hire somebody here who is also a dual citizen who is willing to move back or at least for a few years to the United States until we get that, that organization up and running. So, and then the rest, you have to decide, do you want to painstakingly go out and hire 15 individuals, which is going to take forever, or do you hire a group of people who are already working well together, working in an office and acquire that office? So that's... That's where we're leaning right now. So I say. Mm. Yeah, so that's where you're at. Interesting. And so um, when, you're, when you're making those kinds of decisions, is there a different, you know, I, I, I often talk to people about, um, you know, confidence or stress in our business. Is there a different level of, um, stress when you're making those kinds of decisions or do you feel as though you know in the evolution of this business you've just moved to the place where yep that's where we're at right now and it doesn't you don't even really notice that you've gotten to this place where the decisions are bigger than maybe they were uh, you know uh, when you started out I find that my ability to deal with stress has gotten exponentially better as as we've grown so when you first start a company I think there's nothing more stressful than it's like when you have a baby okay, yeah. it's crying all night okay, there's nothing more stressful than that um it gets i would say it gets i hate to say it gets easier it's the problems are different right yes. what's, what's probably changed is my sophistication as a my ability to tolerate uncertainty uh, because when you're first starting out it's nothing but uncertainty and so you either learn to deal with that you develop an immunity to it or you stop being in business probably, right? Like you have to be able to ride those waves, um, deal with that stress. And eventually you do it so much that you, I think you develop an immunity. Um, and so, and then you just learn to know this too shall pass. And, and so I, I probably the stresses, the problems, let me say, are probably greater. However, my experience is that much greater. And so, and therefore, I'm more confident in making these decisions. So I definitely think it's, it's uh, I'm a kind of a go bigger, go home kind of person, because I think you're, obviously, as we're growing, we have more income, we have more flexibility, we have, and for that reason, also a bigger ability to absorb shocks. <laughs> so, um, whereas when you're starting out and you're razor thin and you've got no money and you can't afford any mistakes, not that I want to make mistakes now, but they're more affordable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would say you're better off to just go big, go global. Also, when you're global, you're less, 
um, you're less sus susceptible to shocks in your own local economy, right? So I'm, I'm very worried about, for example, the shock to the economy with the rail strikes that are happening right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to have a big economic impact. And sometimes I think, thank God, I've got customers in Western Europe and in the United States and other places where we're not going to have those shocks. Well, I mean, there'd probably be different shocks, but the more the more uh, it's kind of like when you're investing in your portfolio, you don't want to put all your, your money into one stock. Right. <clears throat> so I think you're a much more resilient business when you are in these different markets. That's how it feels right now. Such a great way of putting that a, a more resilient business. I love that. Tell me, Erin, what are some of the things that you do differently now? And what are some of the things that are tried and true and you've always run your company this way and you're going to continue to do it that way? Um, the things we do differently now is where we've got a lot more, I would say, legal and um, NDAs and, you know, we, we see the the value that the process, so we've really brought in much more, pro we actually hired a process expert to come in and help us, because when you're a startup, you're just flying by the seat sure. of your pants and you're, you know, you're just, you're doing whatever it takes to keep the lights on kind of thing. As you scale, and we're not a startup anymore, we're a scale up, uh, the process becomes much more important because I, I don't have line of sight to everything we're doing anymore. Like in the beginning, I was, I was reviewing everything before it went out to every customer. I was, you know, I was doing this. Now I have to rely on staff that, you know, and I, so you, you lose control. And if you don't have a good process, the process keeps the, the quality there, right? It's having that process. So, um, so it doesn't, now we want to have that without being bureaucratic and we still want to keep that flavor of, creativity and all that that we had when we were a small company. So you always have to try and uh, balance that. Now, you don't want to become a big bureaucratic organization, but you do need to have those processes in place. And then things that we uh, never want to lose is that personal touch with our staff. So for example, um, okay, so in the beginning we were like radically against having uh, using placement agencies to find our staff because we thought, no, we want to pick them ourselves and approach them and give them that personal touch. Now we're at the point where, oh, no, no, we need like new people now and I don't have time to, you know, approach them. And okay, so so we, we do hire headhunters and placement agencies now because we're, we're at that point. However, we still want to make sure that um, it's, they, they definitely feel that very early in the process they're meeting us and that we that we are heavily involved and invested in picking our staff and stuff like that. It's, so it's always that, you know, you, you, you start to change the way you do things, not necessarily because you want to, but because you have to. Um, and then it's, it's always figuring out, well, how do we keep it uh, personable? And as we expand to other countries, how do we maintain that uh, tie to... Ottawa into the corporate culture. How do we maintain it? And if we're acquiring companies that have a different culture, that's always difficult, right? So I think those are the challenges. I'm not sure. You know, if you ask me, how do we handle those challenges? I think that's TBD kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, those are the things that I worry about and wonder about. And yeah, and are working on. Yeah. When you think about, you know, I, w when you look at that, 
process from going from a startup to a scale up. So thinking back on that, what were some of the key decisions or key things that you realized, oh, now we're leaving this phase and we're going into this one. Um, and, and, and what do we need to do to get to that next level? <laughs> um, hmm, when did we realize that? I think when we started getting really exhausted. <laughs> I remember um, being on a plane. I mean, and it was like, you know, I hadn't been home in a long time. I was traveling all over the place. I was getting frustrated. Like I was telling my business partner, like, I mean, I can't stand commercial air travel anymore. Like I'm developing PTSD when I walk on a plane. Yeah. And he said that he was feeling the same way. And he said, um, he said it reminded him of a, something he read in a book, and I can't remember which Silicon Valley guy had said this, but they were getting off a plane. So it used to be when I was a kid, or when I was younger even, getting on a plane was an exciting thing. Ooh, I'm going to Munich. How exciting. I'm going to go see another place. This is great. Um, now when I get on there, all I think about are the germs and are the, you know, is the plane going to crash? or Like I've just become, and how, you know, is it going to be late and am I going to be exhausted? Am I going to be sitting on the tarmac forever? Anyway, so, um, and I was on the plane and I said, oh, it's lucky, lucky you caught me that I've been sitting on the tarmac for an hour, so I'm actually able to take your call. And he said, are you at that point? Um, he said, in this book where the guy said, we have to get a corporate jet, <laughs> you know, because we can't stand commercial air travel anymore, which is so funny. We're so, like, we're not anywhere near getting a corporate jet, but I realized, yeah, like, I uh, can't stand commercial air travel anymore. Uh, it's just, it's, it's okay when you're going on a holiday yeah. and when, when you're going on the occasional thing, but when you're almost living on the plane, it's really not meant, it's not designed for heavy usage, right? It's a drag. It's, yeah. it's, um, and, and so, and right now, I, when I was, the flight attendants were telling me that they're all kind of wigged out now too, because the 737 max, the shit is not enough plane. And so they're all overworked and they're working like many, many, many days in a row. And it's obvious because <laughs> they're cranky with the passengers even. So, yeah. Um, but I, I'd say the, the we used to have uh, philosophies that, you know, we wanted to build a company where we got, you know, we're, we put family first and this, that, and the other thing. But of course now he and I are both like we see our families on the weekends pretty much. And we're always traveling. And I think that's, uh, and you you have to find you have to figure out at what point do you establish an office overseas, and then there's a lot of there's a lot of consequences to that, right? Versus operating it here. So, yeah. and I think that's a great um, that it raises that point of what are the sacrifices that we make in order to grow, you know, in your case, a global business. Yeah, you, you make a, you know, you make a, well, you make sacrifices just to be an entrepreneur. You know, I, I think now I, I look back, I think you almost have to be crazy to do it. And that's, that's the big crazy step. Once you've decided you're going to do that, then you might as well make it a global company. Okay. Cause you're, um, so the, the, cra the crazy step is in deciding that you're going to do this in the first place. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So how do you manage that? Um, you know, I, I don't like to talk about work life 
balance because I don't think it exists. But how do you, while growing this big giant company um, that's global, create some sort of harmony or blend with the rest of your life? You have to make a very conscious decision to do that. And that's what I came to the realization of that um, balance, if you want to call it, is not going to just happen. It's just, if you don't manage it, Mm -hmm. chaos rules, right? And you're just going, going, going. Uh, You have to take time out to say, you know, when I'm traveling, I'm going to say, I'm going to take time out to smell the roses, right? I am going to go out and just look at the sites and, and do a little bit of taking in the local culture because, you know, bit by bit. Or the other thing that I do sometimes is I try to get in and out as quickly as I possibly can. Like I used to think, okay, I'm going all the way over to England, so I'm going to spend the week there um, and get as many meetings in as I can before I come back. But then you get depressed, right? Because I'm I'm in a foreign country for like five days as opposed to like 24 hours. (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's better to just go in, do the one day of meetings and get back and go back another week, even though I used to think that was a bad thing because now i got to get on a plane again and travel for seven hours. But I'm actually finding that sometimes that's the best way is just go in, quickly do it, and get back so that you feel – and if you can sleep on the plane, it's great. Like sometimes I thought it would be great if I could so, – it's sometimes hard to come in, do the meeting that day, and get back on a plane and never stay in a hotel, you know, shower at the <laughs> airport lounge or whatever. Uh, haven't quite mastered that one yet. But so that's it. I think you have to decide, really know yourself and say, what am I better off doing? Uh, Traveling less often for longer or traveling more often for shorter periods, figuring out what works for you, and then really making that conscious decision and managing it very strictly. That's an interesting reframe. On that, I'm going to take us to break and uh, we'll be back in just a minute with Aaron Kelly. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you ready to grow your business to the next level? Check out SRL Solutions for more information on training, coaching, and lots of resources for building your business sustainably and profitably. As a partner who helps you strategize and plan, Sarah Roach-Lewis helps you turn your vision into reality. She helps you identify the right area of focus at the right time. Visit srl.solutions to find out more and for a free consultation. That's srl.solutions. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Breakthrough with Sarah Roach-Lewis. To reach Sarah or her guest on today's program, please send an email to sarah at srl.solutions. Again, that's sarah at srl.solutions. Now, back to this week's episode of Breakthrough. 
Welcome back to Breakthrough. I'm here with Aaron Kelly of Advanced Symbolics. And uh, while we were on break, uh, Aaron was just talking a little bit. Tell me um, about, uh, you know, some of those experiences that you had had. You often talk to to young people who ask you whether you can have a business and be a parent at the same time. So tell me about your experience with that particular piece. Yes, I find this is, it's a question I get often when I speak at universities. Um, female students will come up to me afterwards and say, oh, you're building a global company. Do you have kids? Are you, wow. And they feel very, you can see the joy on their face when they when I say yes I do and I have a great relationship with them and in fact my kids feel inspired by they can they consider Polly to be their sister they actually say that Polly's their sister <laughs> so it's uh, I don't know if that's sad or what but <laughs> anyway, I think um, it's pretty cool yeah, <laughs> yeah. so um, so it, it, but when I was younger I remember I worked at a big company and the company decided that they wanted to inspire the young women like me uh, by having senior vice presidents who are female at the company do lunch and learns and tell us about their career. The very first one that I went to, um, they had two women, uh, two senior vice presidents and somebody asked, a young woman asked, you know, do you have kids and are you able to juggle being a senior vice president of a big company with having children? The first woman said, absolutely not. I have no children. That was a conscious decision because I don't feel you can be a vice president and be a good mother. You know, that you can mm -hmm. have, I had to make this decision to build my career and the whole thing, which of course was very, that was not inspiring, <laughs> right? Because if no. you're 24 and you want to have a family, now you're being told it's an either or. The other woman said, I do have kids, but I'm very, very strict with them. And her kids were like five and seven, so they're young. I don't talk to them during the week. If they want, they, I don't help them with their homework. They can't talk to me. I'm busy. I'm, do, I'm usually not even home. They know if they want to see me, they have to schedule some time on Saturday. And again, not a great message. When we were 24, not thinking, yes, I want to have kids so I can see them on Saturday, right? So, um, so then, and I guess the feedback is very negative because we all had the, you know, fill out the feedback after, and they must have heard loud and clear because on the next lunch and learn, they brought in a woman who uh, ended up becoming the CEO of Lucent Technologies, like a very, very prominent woman, and she said she was much more, I think, what people people saw themselves wanting to be. I mean, she said, I have children. I spend lots of time with my children. I have a strict policy. I leave the office at five um, and I have dinner with my kids and um, they know that they can come see me anytime. They are my priority. And I am still very successful in my career. So you, yes, you can have both. And, and I thought that was just terrific. It was the right message. And so I'm very conscious of that now as I, as I talk to people that I, um, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, my life is crazy. I'm flying all over the place. My kids still feel very, very connected to me. And, you know, they're teenagers now. Um, I Zoom with them every night if I'm out traveling. And they take inspiration from it. My daughter has said she, she wants to have a high-power career as well. She's very career-focused, and she sees that you can do that and have a happy family. I'm still married. You know, I've been married like 22 years. And I have a very supportive spouse for sure, and you do need that. Um, but you want that anyway, <laughs> I could imagine, yeah. whether you're growing a scale-up company or not. If you're going to have kids with someone, you know, they're, they're, you want them to be in it with you. And so, yeah, so I, I, I have not had to sacrifice my family to build a career, and I'm very glad for that. I'm glad for that, and I'm glad that that's a message that you feel it's important to share. Aaron, 
Tell me a little bit, you know, one of the things I'm curious about is you work in a traditionally male sector. Uh, The tech space is predominantly male. Uh, When we move into AI, even greater. So what is it, what is your experience in that sector as a woman, both, you know, perhaps the joys and the challenges? Yeah, it's, 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 it's both, right? It's joys and challenges. Um, I've definitely had challenges. I've definitely been the victim of uh, both sexism and sexual harassment. I think the Me Too movement is fantastic in that it has raised awareness of this and people are intolerant of that kind of thing. And I'm definitely seeing that. You know, we did a, we did a study for one of the professions. It was a profession that, you know, they wanted to see, you know, what the how people felt about their profession, et cetera. And they wanted to know how to get people with their designation promoted in business. And so we did a, a study on what people are looking for in C-suite ex- executives and how that might have, how, how that's evolved or changed in the, over the last five years. And it was really, really fascinating because of course the things like communication skills were right up there. Like, so if you're hiring a C-suite or a vice president, what are, what is the board of directors looking for? What is the CEO looking for in it in to promote somebody? And it used to be, well, we want experience in that field. So if you're hiring a chief marketing officer, you want them to spend time in marketing and advertising, whatever. If you're hiring IT, you want them to have background in that. We actually found the number two uh, requirement this year in 2019 when hiring an executive was HR background. And when we looked into it, look, why yeah. HR, right? Like, um, And it was because of the Me Too movement. Employers and the board. Board of directors, number two thing. Number one is communication. Number two is HR because they're saying we want people who understand the law, who understand how to build a culture of inclusiveness. And we were seeing this very, very strongly. This has got to the boardroom, which is great. And if there's zero tolerance for the kind of behavior that have been tolerated in the past. So to me, this has been the, you know, the best thing that I've seen. Um, so from that perspective, I think I do see it getting better. But, great. But I've definitely, it's, it's been a recent change. There have been issues before. On the other hand, there's, there's great opportunities. As a woman in AI, I definitely stand out in the crowd. Like we, I have this terrific photo. It's so funny. I was at the Canadian Embassy in Paris, and they were hosting, there was an AI conference in Paris, so they had the Canadian companies come. And, they, of course, they put it out on Facebook. And everybody's in a blue or gray suit, and I'm wearing like a, like a dress, like a very colorful dress, uh, with a pink blazer, and I, you could just, you know, it's like a sea of gray and blue, and then there's Aaron right there, right? <laughs> and everybody commented on it. They were like, wow, look at, you know, you really stand out, right? Um, so, so there, so that's, and, and I, I, you know, right now, if you look at, uh, I don't want to date it, but I've just been the face of, um, on a campaign for, because I'm an accountant, chartered professional accountant, and uh, they just did a campaign because they want to, show that accountants aren't just bean counters and I'm the face of AI for the accounting industry. I sit on the AI task force and stuff like that. Um, so I think it, I'm really glad that I have the opportunity to promote women in business and in technology um, because it's not just AI where women CEOs are and co-founders are rare. It's tech in general. So um, I think it's, it's great and I want to encourage women to to do that and to to build global companies and know that they can do that successfully and uh yeah 
What advice do you have for a woman who is listening to this show right now, chugging along and is totally inspired by, well, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you might as well just run a global company. What advice do you have for that, for that woman who's listening? Surround yourself with, get, with uh, great people, get, get mentorship. Like we've really benefited from uh, mentorship. I was part of a program called the Lazaridis Institute. So this is found, founded by the University of Laurier, obviously with funding from Mike Lazaridis, from uh, the founder of BlackBerry. And his, um, his goal was to provide mentorship for Canadian companies that want to go global because, of course, he's had that experience. He knows it's difficult. So to make sure that they have resources um, and he did a whole cohort just for women, which was fantastic. Yeah. Well, the University of Laurier did a cohort for women, which was fantastic. And I was part of that. And they gave us mentors from Silicon Valley, from, you know, uh, places around the world. We can call these people up and uh, get their advice for when you're moving into new markets. What's the culture there? Uh, you know, how do people tend to interact there? Because it is very different. People tend to think that Canada is like the United States North. No, it's not. It really is. A very different culture yeah. business wise it's a completely different culture <laughs> I mean honestly England is more like us than the United yeah. States is uh, so understanding that understanding the, the different uh, the cultural and legal and tax perspectives and making sure you're going in with eyes wide open I would definitely definitely uh, recommend that um, and one one piece of advice I mean I have a co-founder and that really helps when you have a co-founder because you can afford to, you know, get sick every once in a while and know that you have a co-founder who's just as invested as you are. Um, and I was at a session uh, here for Invest Ottawa, in fact, and one of the biggest bits of advice to a coach who coaches scale-up companies, he said, if you don't have a co-founder, go get one right now, okay? And they have to be as invested in the company as you are. And, and I would say that's very important as well, co-founders um, and um, and having mentorship and making sure that when you're going into a country, you're not doing it without mentorship and, and surround yourself with really great professionals, invest, spend the money on the good lawyer, <laughs> the great accountant. Uh, don't go for, you know, my neighbor's uncle who will do it really cheap for you. And cause get people who've done it before and, uh, and you will sleep much better at night. Mm, that's great advice. You are one of less than 2% of women who've achieved seven figures and beyond in their business. So congratulations on that. We don't often stop to reflect on that. So I'm curious to know how you do celebrate your wins. You know, it's something I have to get better at doing. <laughs> until Actually, until you called me and gave me that statistic, I didn't actually know that it was significant. So, um, and you're right. I think you do have to celebrate your wins. It's like what I said, you have to manage your, your mental health and your physical health as you're traveling around, you're building a global business and you have to consciously do that. Um, I used to say to my husband, we have to, we have to consciously schedule fun in our lives, right? Like if we don't schedule time with the kids and say, we're going to play board nights and we're going to, we're going to go do something for March break. We're not just going to let March break happen. You know, we're going to yeah. always make sure that we're very conscious in everything that we do. Um, and so I haven't celebrated my wins as much as I should, and I think I need to do more of that. I think that's an area of growth for me. Excellent. Well, we'll circle back on that. You can let me know how you celebrated your wins. Erin, okay. I'm curious about 
when we're looking at, you know, part of the show is about uh, in inspiring women, uh, motivating women, and helping people learn, you know, how to grow these businesses. I so I spent a lot of time thinking about about women and their lives. One of the things I'm curious about when you hang out in this AI space is how do you think about things like um, bias, you know, whether it's implicit bias or, uh, you know, how do we make sure that the AI, the technology that we're building is inclusive of all of our, you know, whether it's race or gender or social, social economic status, when you're on the cutting edge of this, how do you think about those sorts of really big things? We think about those things all the time. And it's the reason a lot of our customers have said, Hey, can we just get Polly on our desktop? You know, and uh, so we don't have to work through you kind of thing. And sure. We're working on that, but right now for sure not because the, it's this key challenge that you just mentioned. Polly has to be, raised very tenderly okay because she will like any intelligence um she's very sensitive polly is very sensitive she's very empathetic as well but she's very sensitive um this is true of people as well obviously like it's not just ais that are biased people hmm. AI, ais are biased because people are biased the key is to train the ai properly just like when you raise a child you need to raise them to be thinking of other people and looking at the other perspective uh, for Polly, we have to be very strict in what she sees and what she learns, <clears throat> that she stays on topic, that we don't have her considering things that uh, she shouldn't be considering, making sure that she is uh, given a very balanced perspective from the very beginning. So the training material is where that happens. You have to make sure that we, we were asked early on to uh, use Polly to help recruit staff you know, for companies. And sure, she can sit there and pick up skills, but what they were saying was, here, we're going to give you a list of all our best employees and their employee evaluations, and we want Polly to find people like that. Well, you very quickly discover that Polly becomes very, very ageist and racist, <laughs> and not Polly herself, but that implementation of the AI. Yeah. Because, uh, and it was funny because we had one recruiter that we did this with, and we said, look, these are the best staff, but um, so we came up with the best list these these are the people who actually have the best skill set and experience for what this company is looking for but um, based on their employee evaluations and who does well there you're actually going to get this mid-level person mm -hmm. so he actually went to them he's a british guy and he went to them and he said i love this i'm he said i sat down with the client and i said here's the best staff uh, that's available but you can't have them because you're a shitty employer <laughs> so you can have starting halfway down the page and he said, and the, <laughs> the lights just went off for him. So he said it was really great. Um, but we soon discovered that really the problem there was just companies are very biased in how they hire. They, sure. they go with the gut, not with necessarily with, with the AI is going to say. So we stopped. We don't do that anymore. We don't think actually AI for, for hiring is a good idea. Um, AIs do best with just very balanced data. And I, I do this exercise actually 
give presentations and teach courses on this, we'll go through an article from the newspaper and, and read it as if we were Polly. And, and it's amazing how, because first I get them to read it and I say, are you convinced by this article? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think these people, their brain tumors were caused by where they live. Yeah. And then we go through it and we read it as an AI and you see how biased the article is right? And how actually unscientific it is and how they haven't proven their case at all. And so to answer your question, AIs have much more capacity actually to be unbiased than we do. Because you can say to an AI, I want you to ignore this. I want you to not consider that. You can't say that to a human being. A human being can't park their bias at sure. the door. Yeah, no, that's so, so fair. Yeah, that's so fair. I'm curious, we have about a minute left. Um, one of the challenges I imagine that you face is in terms of, I'm sure there are people who are super interested in this and that there are people who are really um, cautious or downright negative about the, some of those negative connotations around big, big data. How do you manage that marketing side of your business? It's interesting, and I'll try and be succinct. We, um, we have made a conscious decision. We used to try and simplify everything Polly does. Oh, yeah, it's just like what you did before, but now it's with AI. Uh, I think that causes a lot of the distrust. We've made a conscious decision uh, in the last month or two to actually just open the kimono and say, you know what, this is complex stuff. So how about you come with us on this journey, and we really want customers who are willing to work with us month after month and not do one study and not really get it and you know, uh, and when customers start to see how complex it is, they actually start to realize it would take a lot for Polly to take over the world and be a dictator. Okay, <laughs> She's really far from that. Uh, she's very, very complex in how she works, and she does not have the ability to, to, to go in these directions that you see about in the media. So I think it's really in educating people, and that's why I do – give a lot of presentations and speak at universities because I do want people to understand there's a lot of nonsense out there. And um, so take one of my courses, I guess is what I would say um, to, to really understand how AI works. And I think once people get that, the fear subsides substantially. Sure. Thank you. Aaron Kelly, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating and really enjoyable conversation. And I, so I want to say thank you on behalf of me and my listeners. To listeners, thank you for listening. And in the meantime, I hope you'll be back next week to join me again on Breakthrough. Thank you for tuning in to Breakthrough. Be sure to join Sarah Roach Lewis again with another inspiring interview next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.